Today I'm beginning our fourth teaching on a subject that I've entitled Hardness of Heart. We talked about what is a hardened heart, the crisis, and then we talked about the cause of a hardened heart, and now we come to what the cure is. In order to understand the cure for a hardened heart, you first of all have to know what causes your heart to become hardened. And I've majored on two things. One of them, Hebrews chapter 3, says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest your heart become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And so sin will harden your heart towards God. Now, I've emphasized that, but I haven't majored on it because it seems obvious, and I think most religious people definitely believe that a hardened heart is a result of sin. But there's more to it than that. You could be living a very moral life, a good life, and still be hard-hearted towards God. There's another thing that will harden your heart towards God, and it's more deadly than sin in the sense that it's so subtle, most people don't recognize it. And that is just a preoccupation with anything other than God. Doesn't have to be sin. Doesn't have to be anything off color or bad. You can become preoccupied with just living. You can get to where you're a workaholic and get to where you spend so much time focused on just natural things that you don't have any time for spiritual things. And by neglect, you will become hardened towards God. Whatever you neglect your heart starts hardening towards. Whatever you focus on, your heart becomes sensitive to. And I've already taught all of those things and used scriptural examples and uh, scripture passages to make those points. And so I hadn't got time to go back, but that is the truth. Whatever you are focused on, your heart starts becoming sensitive to. Now, what is the cure for a hardened heart? And I'm going to share some things with you out of Matthew chapter 17 that this is one of the greatest revelations that God has ever spoken to me. I know that I say that about a lot of things and there's probably some of you thinking, you say that about everything. Well, it's all true. I mean, if God speaks to you and His parts knowledge, it's awesome. And it is one of the greatest. This is one of the most profound things that God has ever spoken to me. This is something I use constantly in my life. And if you'll just open up your heart, I believe that this could make a huge difference in your life. Now, here's an instance where Jesus, in the first part of the 17th chapter of Matthew, Jesus took three of his disciples and went up on this mountain. And he was what the Bible calls transfigured. Literally, it's like he pulled back the veil that had been hiding who he really was. And the part that he was, divine, God, the Son of God on the inside, it began to radiate out through him. He wasn't like Moses that just got into the presence of God and reflected the glory of God. But Jesus was the glory of God and he radiated light out of him. His garments became so white that it was whiter than uh, anybody on earth could ever make it. It was just the supernatural glory of God shone out of him. And then the glory cloud of God overshadowed him and his disciples and an audible voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And after that was over, Jesus once again like pulled this veil over him and went back to where the glory of God was concealed on the inside. And he and his three disciples came down from the mountain. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 17 and in verse 14. It says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, 
for he is lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Now this word lunatic in the King James here, most people believe that this is some kind of a seizure. He had something where he would have seizures and fall on the ground, and, and uh, that's what it was talking about, something like epilepsy. And he brought uh, his son to the disciples of Jesus. While Jesus and three of his disciples were up on the mountain, the uh, other nine disciples were down still on the plain, and they brought this uh, lunatic boy or this demon-possessed boy to the disciples to cast this demon out, and they couldn't do it. And so he called to Jesus for help. And here's Jesus' response in verse 17. Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Now we're going to go on and talk about how that Jesus cast this demon out. And then he used this to teach his disciples a lesson about a hardened heart and how to overcome it. So that's where I'm going. But first of all, let me just say that Jesus, how did he respond to the disciples' inability to deliver this boy from this spirit that was causing these seizures. You know how it's presented today, how most people would present the Lord, that if something like this was to happen, they would tell us that we're just supposed to show compassion towards these people. We're supposed to sympathize with them. We're supposed to put our arm around them and say, I know it's tough. I know it's really bad. Let me tell you about all of the things that I've prayed for that God has never set me from. And uh, you just sit there and sympathize with people, but you don't really demonstrate any power. There's a large segment of the church today that doesn't believe we're supposed to have the ability to cast out demons and to cause sicknesses to be healed and things like this. And they're preaching that that's normal. How did Jesus respond? Man, he didn't see it as normal. He said, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I suffer you? How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Jesus wasn't pleased with their inability to meet the needs of people. Well, I think that's worth noting. Jesus wasn't pleased with the fact that they couldn't get people healed, that they couldn't cast demons out. And I tell you what, I don't believe that Jesus is pleased today with the way that the body of Christ misrepresents Him in this area. The church today should be operating in enough power that we're seeing demons cast out and people healed and people set free. Well, they ought to be the first stop, ought to be the church instead of the hospital or the bank or the psychiatrist. You may disagree with that, but I tell you, that's one of the reasons that you aren't seeing victory in those areas. If you think that the Lord can do these things but isn't prone to do it, and we ought to exhaust every other resource first and only come to God if it can't be handled by anything natural or physical, then that's what I call a hardened heart. That's what I call that you are more sensitive to and dominated by and controlled by natural things than you are spiritual things. God wants us to be his representative here on earth. And I guarantee you, if Jesus was here in his physical body, he'd still be healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, raising the dead, and doing all of the things that he did when he was here. He expects us to be doing it. So you can tell by his reaction to these disciples' inability to meet the need that this isn't pleasing to him. Now, God loves us, and we are accepted with God through what Jesus has done. But the Lord isn't pleased with our misrepresentation of him today. Boy, we need to change. So in verse 18, it says, And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. 
So Jesus did what the disciples were unable to do. Apparently they'd put a lot of effort into this and they didn't see any victory in this area. Jesus just spoke to the demon and it came out. In verse 19 it says, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And this is what I'm really wanting to focus on here. Because this is very important. And this, uh, many of you can relate to this. These disciples said, why couldn't we cast him out? Now, before you get into Jesus' answer, you've got to recognize that these weren't people who had never cast out demons before. I'm not going to take time to turn over there. But in the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus commissioned these exact disciples and told them to go out and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, and raise the dead. And they went out, and when they came back and reported, there wasn't a single question answered that was recorded in Scripture. They were just rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through your name. So these people had already been given the authority and the power to cast out devil, and they had used it, and they had seen success. And the very fact that no questions were recorded implies that they had had 100% success before. So this is significant because this means that when they said, why couldn't we cast him out? This wasn't their first time to ever try it. This is from people who believed it was God's will and who had cast devils out before. They had seen the power of God operate before, but this time they believed and they know they believed and yet they didn't get the right results. Now see, I think it's important for you to recognize this because this isn't talking about people who knew they were in unbelief. You know, let me say it this way. The people who are probably the most concerned are frustrated over not seeing the supernatural power of God displayed in their life are people who believe that it's God's will to manifest that power. Do you follow what I'm saying here? In other words, let's take some of the body of Christ today. There's a large number of people who believe that God doesn't do miracles today, that people don't get healed. There's some people that preach that if you believe that God does heal today and do miracles, that you're of the devil. (laughs) It's amazing to me how that this is switched around so that if you act the way that Jesus acted in the Bible, there's certain quote-unquote Christians today who will say you're of the devil for wanting to be like Jesus. I don't follow that logic, but there are people who believe that. But you know this, the people who don't believe that miracles happen and that God heals today, none of them are perplexed about why a person dies and why people don't get healed because they don't believe for it. They aren't expressing their faith in that area. They aren't trying to believe God for anything. So they aren't disappointed or frustrated when they don't see it happen. They weren't expecting it. The people who are more frustrated are people who believe that it is God's will for victory in their life, financially, physically, emotionally, and all of these kind of things. And they're believing and and praying and asking, and yet they don't see it come to pass. Now, those are the people who have disappointment and frustration in this area. People who don't believe for God to do anything aren't surprised when He doesn't do it but people who do believe for God to move and intervene and release His supernatural power are surprised and frustrated and disappointed when they don't experience it. I I think that makes sense. And so the reason I'm bringing all of this up is to say that one of the pat answers that you get when somebody says, all right, if it's God's will for a person to be healed 
and you prayed for them, they prayed, they believed God, and yet here they died of sickness. Why weren't they healed? The number one response that you will get from most people who preach that it's God's will to do these supernatural things is the pat answer is, well, they just didn't believe. And let me say this. I'm, I'm going to say that this isn't the only reason. I think that's too simplistic of an answer. But before I go into what else it is that causes us not to receive, let me say this, that that is one reason why people don't receive from God. Now, I think it's too simplistic and it's hard and sometimes condemning to a person to sit there and say, the reason you haven't seen this healing happen yet is because you just are full of unbelief. You don't believe God. I think that that's too narrow-minded, that's too condemning, and that's not what these scriptures are saying. That's not the answer that Jesus is going to give. But before I go on unto these other things, let me say that if you aren't believing God, that is a major reason why people don't receive from God. I don't think it's the only reason, but I think it's a major reason. And in many cases, it certainly is the case. I've had people come to me before and ask for prayer for something, and they just heard, you know, it's the very first service they've ever been to where they hear somebody say that it's God's will to heal, and they just want to come up and see if it's going to work. They don't believe. They just were brought there by somebody. They were kind of coerced into coming forward, and they just want me to wave my hand over them, and if it's God's will, then get me healed. You know what? That person is full of unbelief. They haven't spent any time developing their faith and learning the principles of God and my tendency, I don't always have time to minister to people and explain things, but my tendency would be to tell that person, you know what, first of all, take these tapes. Get into the Word. Study healing. Find out how healing works and what God's will is concerning healing. And then come and let me or let someone else pray with you. Because right now, if I pray for you and if you have this attitude of unbelief, your unbelief is just going to totally short-circuit the power of God. So one reason that people don't get healed is because they just don't have any faith for it. If they were to pray and if they were to see an instantaneous miraculous healing, they would be shocked because that's not what they're expecting. That's not what they're believing for. So one reason that people don't get healed is that they aren't believing God for healing. There's a lot of people that believe that God does not do this, that it's God's will. Some people think their time is up, their number is up. God is calling them home. There's people that have been taught that God wants them to be sick. This is how he's teaching them, how he's disciplining them. He's humbling them. He's making them better through their suffering, which I've taught on all of those things, and I believe all of that's wrong. God doesn't use our situations and circumstances and tragedy to humble us. Now, he can use those things, but it's not God who's the author of that. See, if you believe any of that stuff then it makes you double-minded if you think God gave it to you and then you're asking God to take it away. That's just a lack of proper believing and it's not going to work. And so that's one reason, but that's not the only reason. And I think that if that's the only factor that you include, it's just a matter of if you believed God, you'd be healed, you'd be delivered, you'd be set free. If that's the only way that you represent God then there's going to be a lot of very sincere people who really believe God and are believing and standing in faith and yet don't see the manifestation of what they're praying for and they're going to be put off and offended 
and they're going to say that, well, you're condemning, and in many cases that would be true. And so there's a large segment of the body of Christ that because they've only heard this one answer, that if you haven't received it, it's because you just are not believing God. And they've been put off by that, and so they reject the whole thing that it is God's will to heal because they see some people who've been condemned and made to feel like they're a second-class Christian because they hadn't seen a manifestation of their healing or whatever. Let me give you, here's an example that hopefully this example will make clear my point. You know, I've uh, been ministering for a long period of time. I've seen God do some wonderful things, including seeing people raised from the dead, my own son included. And the very first person that I ever saw raised from the dead, it was just miraculous. It was awesome. And not long after I had seen this man raised from the dead, I was in Omaha, Nebraska, I was holding a meeting, and there was a man to my left on the front row over here who was in a wheelchair. I didn't know what was wrong with him, but it was obvious that he was in a wheelchair. Something was wrong. And my logic was that I'd just seen God raise a guy from the dead. And if God could raise a person from the dead, certainly he could heal a person in a wheelchair. And so I was preaching, and I was watching this guy, and in my heart, I just felt a desire uh, a quickening of God to go minister to this guy. And I was fully expecting for this guy to be totally healed. And so after I had had this great experience of seeing a man raised from the dead, I just could hardly wait for me to get through with my message so I could go minister to this guy. So I walked over there. I said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to be whole. And I grabbed this guy by the hand and I just yanked him out of that wheelchair. And, you know, this was a big guy. He was probably 6'3 or something like that. Of course, he was in a wheelchair sitting down. But when I pulled him out, he was a big guy. And he came up like this and just fell over on his face. And because he was paralyzed, I think he was able to use his arms, but his legs were paralyzed. He couldn't really catch himself. And you know what? He just fell on his face in front of all these people. And when that happened, man, I was humiliated. I turned every shade of red that there was. The people in the room gasped, you know, sucked all the air out of the room. There was just tremendous amount of fear, unbelief. And I didn't know what to do. I, I grabbed this guy. He was a big man. And I had to grab him and bear hug him and wrestle him and put him back in the chair and say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. But I didn't give him what he needed. And you know, when I went to my hotel room that night, I was just super confused. And here's the point that I was wanting to make. Some people would say, well, you just didn't have any faith. You know, give me a break. How many of you have grabbed somebody in a wheelchair and said, in the name of Jesus, be healed, and yanked them out of the wheelchair in front of hundreds of people? You know why, you know why I did that? Because I did believe this guy was going to be healed. I knew it was God's will, and I had faith. I was believing God. If you don't believe God, you don't just go up and tell a person you're healed and grab them by the hand and yank them out of that wheelchair. I knew I was believing God. And from my perception, I may be wrong, but it looks to me like, it felt to me like that I had just as much faith operative to get this man out of that wheelchair and to see him healed as I had when I had prayed for the man and seen him raised from the dead. I know what faith is, and I know I was believing God. And yet, with the dead man, I saw great results. With the man who was in the wheelchair, I didn't see the right results. 
And this really confused me. And I was just like these disciples right here in Matthew 17, 19. Lord, why couldn't I do it? Why didn't it work this time? And I was confused. Now, I hope you understand what I'm saying. Now, if, if I had not believed God and somehow or another I just felt condemned or pressured into it, if the guy was to come forward and say, you're going to pray for me and when you pray, I'll be healed. But I didn't feel any faith. I didn't have any confidence. I didn't have any leading of the Lord. But for whatever reason, I was just forced into it. And if I would have prayed for him and have seen him fall on his face, then I probably wouldn't have been as perplexed because I would have known that in my heart, I just wasn't believing for it. I didn't have any faith. I didn't feel any quickening of God. But I did. I felt impressed of God. I fully expected this guy to get up and walk out of that wheelchair. There was faith present. And yet, my faith didn't get the right results. Now, I know that some of you, this is stretching your understanding. And you're saying, so are you saying that faith doesn't work? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying faith is a powerful force and faith works. And faith must be present in order to see the power of God in manifestation. If you doubt, if you are not going to believe God, then you won't be surprised if you don't see the right manifestation. But here's what I am saying. You can believe God and still not see the right results because of other factors. And that's what these disciples were talking about. They believed God. They had seen demons cast out before. They spoke and acted and did the same things that they had seen work before, but this time it didn't produce the same results, and that's the reason they were surprised. Not because they weren't believing God. They were believing God, and yet they didn't get the same results. Now, why is it? That's the question that they were asking. And look at what Jesus said. Again, let's go back to Matthew chapter 17, verse 19. It says, Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Now, before I go on and read the rest of this, let's just stop right there and think about this. Look at what he did not say. He didn't say it's because you weren't believing. It's because you don't have any faith. It's because your faith is too little. Now, let me just acknowledge something here. If you are reading an NIV, a New International Version of the Bible, it says it's because of your little faith. And I'm not here to sit there and criticize and put down a version of the Bible, but I just believe that that is absolutely missing the point. That is not what it says. Because Let's just look at this. In verse 20, Jesus said unto them, It's because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. He goes on to say, If your faith is only the size of a mustard seed. I don't know if you've ever seen a mustard seed, but it is tiny, tiny, tiny. So the point that he's making is, if your faith is only this big, if it's tiny, if it's little, it's still enough to cast a mountain into the sea if you don't doubt in your heart. He couldn't be saying that it's because of your little faith because then he goes on and talks about how it only takes a minuscule amount of faith to see this great miracle come to pass. So when the NIV says it's because of your little faith, it's just totally missing the point. It's more accurate exactly the way the King James has translated it. Jesus said, it's not because of your little faith. He says, it's because of your unbelief. 
And many people just immediately say, well, wait a minute. If you've got unbelief, then you don't have faith. Most people have just assumed that if you have faith, you don't have any unbelief. And if you have any unbelief, then you don't have any faith. That they are mutually exclusive. But newsflash, here's one of the great points I'm trying to get across, is that yes, you have to believe God to receive from Him. And if there isn't any faith, then don't be surprised if you don't see a miracle. I agree with that. But it is possible to have faith and yet have that faith negated or canceled by unbelief. In other words, you can have faith and unbelief at the same time. And unbelief can dilute your faith to the point that the faith doesn't produce the desired results. Now that is a radical concept, and that's a concept that most people don't have. Again, most people think, if I really was believing God, I wouldn't have any unbelief over here. But there are people, and I believe I have experienced this myself, to where I did have faith, and yet I didn't see the desired result, not because I didn't have faith, but because I had unbelief also present that diluted and negated my faith. You know, I've used this illustration before. It's just like if I had a huge weight in front of me that was so heavy, you know, you had to hook a horse up to it or something, you know, with that kind of power to drag and to move this weight. If I was to hook that horse up and if he was to release his power, he could move that weight. But what if you had a horse of equal strength hooked up, pulling in the opposite direction? If you had equal forces pulling on this weight in opposite directions, then there could be tremendous force exerted, and yet the net effect would be that the weight wouldn't move because the forces canceled each other out. See, I believe that that's what Jesus is saying. It wasn't the fact that the disciples didn't believe. They did have faith, but this time they had unbelief present, and the unbelief negated, counterbalanced. It diluted their faith that they had to the point that they didn't see the right results. And I don't think that most people have considered this. Most people just think, you know, if I would have really believed God, then I would have gotten the right results. And so they're confused because to their best of their knowledge, they did believe God and yet they didn't see the healing or the deliverance or whatever it is that they're praying for. I think you also need to consider that you can have faith and yet have unbelief at the same time. As a matter of fact, we're talking about this story of where Jesus cast this demon out of a lunatic boy and he was healed. This same thing is recorded in Mark chapter 9. It's the exact same story, and, uh, but there's a little bit more detail. When the father brought the child to Jesus to cast this demon out, look what it says in Mark chapter 9 in verse 20. It says, they brought him unto him, they brought this demon-possessed lunatic boy unto Jesus, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and, and wallowed foaming. And he asked the father, this is talking about Jesus, asked the father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child, and oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, again, the story is that the boy had already had the disciples minister to him and try and cast this demon that was causing these seizures out of him, and it didn't work. Now they brought him to Jesus, and as he came to Jesus, he fell on the ground and began to wallow and foam. 
And when this happened, Jesus asked the father, he says, how long has he had this? And he said, since a child. And finally, the father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. You know what? The man had faith. That's the reason he brought his child to Jesus and to Jesus' disciples in the first place. But the disciples had already been ministering to him and he hadn't seen the right results. Here when they brought the boy to Jesus, instead of the boy getting better, he had a seizure right in front of Jesus. And you know what? It was beginning to wear on the father and the father actually was beginning to break and begin to express unbelief. And he said, if you can do anything... You know, that's not a statement of faith. That wasn't a positive thing. I know you can heal, but rather if you can do anything. This man's faith was beginning to crack and he was basically throwing it all back on Jesus. You know, it's your responsibility. If you can do anything, have mercy on us and deliver my son. And look what Jesus said in verse 23. Jesus said unto him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Jesus threw the responsibility right back on this father. He says, it's not a question of if I can do it, if I can believe. It's a question of if you can believe. And he challenged this man to believe and to trust that God was going to deliver his son. And look what happened in verse 24. It says, and straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, see, this man was expressing something here that I've been trying to say on our program today. He says, Lord, I do have faith, but I also have unbelief. Now, again, that's not the way that most people think today. Most people think that faith and unbelief are mutually exclusive. And if they pray and don't see something happen, they think that it's always this simple answer of, well, you just didn't believe God. If you would have believed God, you would have received Again, I say you do have to believe God to receive, but it's possible to believe and not receive because you have unbelief present that negates it. This man was expressing that. He says, Lord, I believe, but I've got unbelief. Now, how did Jesus respond to him? Did he say, hey, that's wrong. If you believed, there would be zero unbelief. Nope, that's not what he did. You know what? Jesus just turned around and ministered and helped the father and cast the demon out of this boy. In other words, Jesus didn't rebuke this man. He didn't correct his theology. This man said, I believe, I have faith, and I have unbelief at the same time. And I believe that that was a true statement. As a matter of fact, you could also take Mark chapter 11, verse 23, and Jesus said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith come to pass. He's talking about having faith. He says, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now notice he said, and shall believe, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith. Jesus here was talking about having faith, but at the same time he says, and don't doubt in your heart. Now why would Jesus tell them not to doubt if faith automatically meant you had no doubt? Again, I could go on and on, but I hope you see the principle I'm trying to establish. It's possible to have faith and believe and yet have your faith not accomplish the right results because it is counterbalanced or negated or you could say diluted by unbelief. Now that is a concept that most people don't have. Instead of trying to build your faith high, what you've got to do is decrease this unbelief. And when you get your unbelief down to zero, you will find out that a little mustard seed amount of faith 
Just the same faith that you used to get born again with is enough faith to see a mountain cast into the sea. It's enough faith to see cancer healed, heart problems healed, to see the dead raised. It doesn't take huge faith. It just takes a pure faith. Radical concept. And again, let me give you a personal illustration of a man who was in a wheelchair. I believe that God told me to minister to him and he was coming out of that wheelchair. I was bold enough. I had enough faith that I walked up to him, grabbed him by the hand, pulled him out of that wheelchair, but he just fell over on his face. And I had to wrestle him back into his chair and he went home without receiving his miracle. And I was really confused by it. I was confused because I did have faith. I know I was expecting to see this man heal, and yet I didn't get the right results. And I was confused about that for a long period of time. That's when the Lord began to speak to me about a hardened heart. And some of the ways that I began to see this was I was reading a book about Smith Wigglesworth. He's a man that ministered back in the mid 1900s, and he saw people raised from the dead, a powerful minister, and uh, great things happened. And anyway, as I was reading this book about Smith Wigglesworth, he gave an example that uh, it was actually his son-in-law who was writing this book about him, and he gave an example that it was typical for Smith Wigglesworth that when he held a meeting, he would first of all stand up and he'd say, the first person to get up on this stage will be healed of whatever sickness or disease you have. And he would minister to them, see them healed, and then that would grab the people's attention. He would teach the word about how it happened, and then he would give an altar call at the end where he would pray and see lots of miracles happen. Blind eyes open, deaf ears open, and great miracles. And so anyway, I was reading this story about him, and there was a time that Smith did his typical thing and said the very first person to get up here on the stage will be healed of whatever you've got. And there was a woman in the audience who was you know, older, she was 60, 70 years old or whatever, and she had a tumor in her stomach that made it look like she was eight or nine months pregnant. And this woman had deteriorated to the degree that she could put her hand around her arm. Her muscles were atrophied. She couldn't stand on her own. So she had two friends, a woman on each side of her that actually helped her sit up and help carry and move her around. And they grabbed this woman and put her on the stage, and she was the first person to be on the stage. So Smith Wigglesworth started ministering to her and he just told these two women that were holding her up, he said, let her go. And these women said, we can't let her go, she'll fall. And Smith just yelled at them and said, let her go. And they let her go and boom, this woman fell right on that tumor that was in her stomach and let out this cry of pain. And of course the audience gasped and there was all of this unbelief present because they didn't see the manifestation of her healing. And as I was reading this, this reminded me exactly of when I grabbed this man by the hand that was in that wheelchair and commanded him to walk and grabbed him and he came out and fell over on his face. It was a similar thing. The results, the reaction of the people in the crowd where I was, everybody just gasped and there was unbelief present. The same thing happened to Smith Wigglesworth. It was exactly the same thing. And yet, here's where God began to speak to me. You know how Smith responded to it? He just said, pick her up. So these two women picked her up. They were holding her there again on the stage. And he said, let her go. And these women said, we can't let her go. She'll fall again. And he yelled at him and says, I said, let her go. And so they let her go. And boom, here this woman falls on that tumor again. You know how Smith responded? He said, pick her up. 
Now, in contrast, you know how I responded when this man that I pulled out of the wheelchair and he fell over on his face? You know how I responded? I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. I was feeling sorry not only for me but for God, for the way that I had represented him. And I wrestled this guy back and just basically told him, you know, I believe God's healing you. You stand in faith and keep going on, hold on. And you know what? The way I responded was totally different than the way Smith responded. Now, the first results was exactly the same. But see, here's what God began to show me. It wasn't that Smith Wigglesworth had more faith than I did. I believe I had the same type, the same quality of faith that Smith Wigglesworth had when he said, let that woman go and she fell on her face. I had that same faith when I grabbed this man by the hand and lifted him out of the wheelchair. It was faith. And I've seen my faith work. I had seen people raised from the dead prior to this man coming out of this wheelchair. I know what faith is. And I had faith. And I released faith. But the difference is, now pay attention. This is what I pray that you get. This is what began to just open up my whole heart to this teaching on unbelief and and hardness of heart. I did have faith. I had the same type of faith that Smith Wigglesworth had. But... The difference is I was still sensitive to what people thought, to people's opinion, to the unbelief of other people. When I stood in faith and commanded something to happen and I didn't see the right results, immediately I started thinking about what are people going to think? Man, I've embarrassed myself. I've embarrassed God. I didn't represent God. And I was sensitive to those things. You know the difference? Smith Wigglesworth, he prayed for this woman the very first time. She fell on her face. He did it a second time. But the difference was he didn't care what anybody else thought. He was so focused, so single-minded upon what God said that this was his son-in-law that was writing this uh, thing, telling this thing in the book that I was reading. And the son-in-law said the most common criticism of Smith Wigglesworth was that he was hard. And see, that's what we're talking about, a hardened heart. We've emphasized primarily about how our heart becomes cold, insensitive, unfeeling, or unyielding towards God. But you can reverse this process to where you're so focused on God, you're sensitive, soft towards Him, but you become hardened towards what you don't consider. And Smith Wigglesworth was so God-centered, God-focused, that he had become hardened to what people said. And the biggest criticism against Smith Wigglesworth was that he was hard, cold, insensitive, unfeeling, and unyielding towards people. And you know why he was that way? Because he was so sensitive to God. You can't be sensitive to God and yet sensitive to the unbelief and the criticisms of people at the same time. They're in opposite directions. So you know what Smith did? He commanded this woman to... He commanded the two women holding this woman with the tumor to let go. She fell on her face twice. And the second time he says, pick her up. So they picked her up. And the third time Smith said, let her go. And these two women said, we aren't letting her go this time. She'll fall again. Says, we aren't doing it. And he said, you let her go. And this time a man in the audience said, you beast, Leave that poor woman alone. And Smith got angry and yelled at him and said, You mind your business. I know my business. And then he yelled at those women again with so much authority. He said, Let her go. They just let her go again the third time. But this time, that tumor fell out of her dress 
and fell on the stage and she walked right out of there totally healed of cancer. Now let me just suggest to you that Smith Wigglesworth didn't have an ounce more faith than what I had. He didn't have perfect results the first time either. But the difference was I had tons more unbelief present than what Smith did. Smith didn't have bigger faith than I did. It was just the fact that he had the same faith, the same faith that I had seen raise people from the dead, the same faith that I used to get born again, the same faith that you used to do anything. It's the same faith that you used to see the dead raised or the blind healed or anything else. It doesn't take more faith to get cancer healed than it does a cold. The difference is there is more unbelief, fear associated with cancer than there is with a cold. And that's the reason that people get different results. That's the reason for most people it's harder to receive a healing of your cancer than it is to receive a healing of a cold. It's not because it takes more faith. There aren't certain things that, you know, it takes big faith, lots of faith to accomplish some things. No, Jesus said right here in Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you should say unto this mountain, be thou removed, cast into the sea, and it would obey you. It doesn't take big faith. It just takes a pure faith, a faith that isn't counterbalanced by unbelief. And this is what most people are missing. They just think, I need more faith. They're praying and asking God to increase their faith. Oh, God, give me more faith. They see somebody else who's operating and seeing miracles happen, and they think, oh, I wished I had the faith that he has. You do. There's nobody who has an individual faith. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Our faith comes from God, and God gave every born-again believer the measure of faith is what it says in Romans 12, 3. Not a measure of faith, the measure of faith. There's only one measure. There's only one amount. God gave every one of you who have put faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus, the gift of faith, the measure of faith. You have more than enough faith to accomplish anything you need. It's not that you don't have enough. It's that you have too much, too much unbelief. And that unbelief comes because we are so dominated, so preoccupied with the physical, natural things of this world. And what that does, it hardens our heart towards the faith that God has given us. It desensitizes us to that and instead it gives Satan this inroad to cause fear, unbelief, worry about what people think. See, in my situation, it wasn't that I didn't have faith to see this man in the wheelchair healed. I did have faith but I was still susceptible, still swayed by people's opinion, worrying what people think about me. I've embarrassed this man. I've hurt his family. And I was sensitive to these other things besides God. And you know what that did? That was an inroad for unbelief to come in and hinder my faith. So it's really not that when you see Abraham in the Bible say that he had more faith than I've got. No, Abraham didn't have more faith. He had less unbelief. He didn't spend hours a day in front of the television. He didn't listen to As the Stomach Turns on television and watch that. And he didn't do all of these kind of things, but he was single in his focus upon the Lord. So much so that the Bible says when he was challenged by God to believe that he was going to have a child when he was 100 years old, it says in Romans chapter 4, he considered not 
his own body now dead. I believe that's Romans 4:19 or 20 right in there. He considered not. He didn't think about his own body. What you fail to consider, you become hardened to. What you consider, you become sensitive to. His consideration was all on God, and because of it, he was dominated by faith. Our consideration is primarily on the natural things. It may not be sinful, but it's just natural. And because of that, we are more sensitive to just natural things than we are to supernatural things. And that's what the problem is. Just like Jesus told his disciples, guys, it's not the fact that you don't have faith, it's the fact that you've got unbelief. I could go into a lot more explanation, but let me just say something quickly. I'm not going to take a long time to explain this. You could turn it over to Mark chapter 9 and read this same story of this uh, that we were reading here in Matthew 17. It's the same instance, but in Mark chapter 9, it says that as they brought this demon-possessed boy to Jesus, that the spirit, the demonic spirit, tore him and he fell on the ground and wallowed and foamed at the mouth. Now, the King James calls it a lunatic spirit. Uh, To me, it sounds like it's something like epilepsy. And I don't know if you've ever seen a person with epilepsy have a seizure or something, but I remember when I was in high school, I was singing at one of our high school uh, graduations, I think it was, or something like that, and I was in the choir, and we were on bleachers, and there was a girl right in front of me that we were friends. She was older than me, but she went to my church, and we knew each other. And she turned around at me while we were during one of these performances and she looked at me and she started foaming at the mouth and she had a seizure and bit her tongue and uh, just fell into my arms. And I tell you what, it scared the liver out of me. I had never seen anything like that before. If you haven't seen that, I guarantee you that will draw your attention to it. It's a scary thing. And my point in saying that is that when this boy was brought to Jesus, he had one of these seizures. I believe personally that this is what happened to the disciples. They had cast demons out before. They had seen people delivered, but apparently they hadn't seen this type of manifestation. They hadn't seen the Spirit tear somebody and fall on the ground and begin to convulse and shake and foam at the mouth. And you know what this did? It just summoned unbelief out of them. It took their attention away from the promise that God had given them that they all, they had authority over all demons to cast them out, Matthew chapter 10. And instead of looking at what God had said, they looked at what they saw and they were overcome with unbelief. And this is what Jesus is saying. They're saying, why couldn't we cast him out? They knew they had faith. They spoke. Why didn't it work? He's saying, it's not the fact that you didn't believe. You had faith, but you were moved by what you saw. And this is how you were overcome with unbelief. Let me phrase it this way. And, you know, I can't show you a scripture that would say it exactly the way I'm saying it, but I believe that the things I'm saying are scripturally correct and accurate. But I'll just present this to you as andeology. And you can think about it yourself. But in my study, there are three types of unbelief. The first type of unbelief that I would identify is an unbelief that comes through lack of knowledge or ignorance. You just don't know any better. You know what? If you don't know that it's God's will for you to be healed, then you're automatically going to have unbelief about it. You aren't going to believe for it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So how do you overcome unbelief that comes through just ignorance or lack of knowledge? Well, the way you overcome that is by the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so you just tell a person the truth. 
And if they have a heart to receive it, they can automatically overcome the unbelief that comes through ignorance by just hearing the truth. Then there's a second type of unbelief that isn't a lack of knowledge, but rather it's wrong knowledge. It's wrong teaching. It's probably what I would be more appropriate to call disbelief. You are believing, but you're believing the wrong thing. You were taught the wrong thing. For instance, a person who believes that God doesn't do miracles today and has been taught that and is taught that miracles passed away and it's of the devil if you have miracles or speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life, that's not, that's not uh, unbelief in the sense that they aren't believing. They are believing, but they are disbelieving. They're believing the wrong thing. Now, the way you deal with that kind of unbelief is that you counter it with the truth of God's Word. It's basically the same thing. And it's harder to get a person delivered from that kind of unbelief because they have knowledge, but it's wrong knowledge. So instead of just telling them the truth, you have to counter the unbelief and get the unbelief out and then put the truth in. So it's kind of a two-step process. It's actually harder to get a person who's been taught wrong to believe than it is a person who hasn't been taught anything. But the answer is basically the same. You tell them the truth and the truth sets them free. But then there's a third type of unbelief. And again, this is just my terminology, but it's what I call natural unbelief. In other words, this isn't coming from ignorance. It's not coming through wrong knowledge. It's just that like, say for instance, with these disciples, they were praying for this demon to come out of this boy. But instead of him looking delivered, And free, if he did what he did when they brought him to Jesus, he fell on the ground and the Spirit tore him and he began to convulse and foam at the mouth. And with their eyes and with their ears, they were seeing and hearing things that were contrary to what they had prayed. And so there was just naturally this thought that it didn't work. Instead of him better, he's worse. That's just a natural unbelief. It's... And it's not wrong in a sense. Your eyes and ears tell you, they feed you information from the natural realm. And you have to have that information. You can't just drive by faith. You've got to take this natural input and use it. It is not sin. It's not wrong to receive input from what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. But there are going to be times that what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel are going to be different than what God says. And when that happens, you have to be able to supersede those five senses and go by faith instead of what your senses tell you. And if you can't do that, your senses are going to tell you things that aren't necessarily wrong teaching or something. It's just natural stuff that will cause you to naturally disbelieve. You're believing for a healing and yet your body or the doctor says that you're sick. Now that's not necessarily of the devil. They're just telling you what they see. They're telling you what their tests reveal. It's not demonic. It's just natural truth. And you know what? There is a natural unbelief that comes when what you see or feel doesn't line up with what God's Word says. And to get the results that Jesus is talking about here, you have to believe and doubt not in your heart. How do you keep from having this natural type of doubt, unbelief come up? When you just see and feel things differently than what God's Word says. How do you keep that unbelief from diluting and negating your faith? Man, that is a powerful question right there. Well, you know how you do it? Ultimately, it's this whole teaching that I've been doing on hardness of heart. 
you have to just stay so focused on the things of God that you refuse to think on the things that are natural. You refuse to let your five senses dominate you. And you can do that. I know some of you are thinking, oh, you can't do things like this. Well, here's another way of expressing it. I believe that when God created man, He actually created us with six senses, not just five, not just what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. I believe that originally man operated by faith. We were created in God's image, and God is a God of faith. He calls those things which be not as though they were. He wasn't limited to what you can just see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And I believe He created us in His image. And before sin entered into the earth, I believe that Adam and Eve walked by faith. They didn't walk by sight. Did you know when their eyes were opened, they were opened to the physical realm is what this is talking about. Their eyes had been opened in the spiritual realm. They had been able to see and perceive God. Now whether they saw Him physically, I'm not saying that, but they could perceive Him. They could see Him. They could relate to Him. And to prove it, it was, it was like they were nearly blind in the physical realm. The first thing that they became aware of when their eyes were opened, the first thing they became aware of was that they were naked. Did you know that they weren't one stitch more naked after they sinned than they were before they sinned? They were both naked before they sinned. They didn't have a robe of righteousness as some people talk about symbolically. They were just totally naked before they sinned. They were totally naked after their sin, but the difference was their eyes were open to it. Now, this doesn't mean that they had never noticed that the other person was naked. I believe that they, they noticed it, but it wasn't where their focus was. They weren't walking by what they could see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. They were really living and dominated by that faith realm. They were seeing things from their heart. And I've done some teaching on this. I hadn't got time to go back through it. But you can actually see better with your heart than you can see with your physical eyes. You can perceive clearer with your heart than you can with your physical eyes. And I believe that Adam and Eve originally lived in that realm. When they sinned, their eyes were opened. And what happened was they began to start focusing upon the physical realm instead of the spiritual realm. And because of that, this sixth sense of faith we begin to be hardened towards it. I believe that we were all built with the ability to know things that bypassed your peanut brain's processing power. Every one of you at some time or another have been considering what you should do and debating, should I do this, should I do that? You go ahead and do something and the moment you do, you fail and all of a sudden you think, I knew I shouldn't have done that. How did you know it? There wasn't anything that told you it was just a sixth sense of faith. I believe that God gave us that ability, and all of us have seen this at times, but I believe in a sense we've de-evolved to where most people don't walk by faith. They just walk by their five senses. So here's my illustration that I'm trying to make. When you lose one of your five senses, say, for instance, if you go blind, did you know that people can still walk around? I've seen people walk around town with one of these sticks and cross streets and walk over curbs and do things like this. You can learn to adapt. You can get to where you start using your sense of feel and your sense of hearing. You actually get to where those things become more uh, uh, conditioned, more toned, more receptive to them. And what you do, you begin to rely on those other senses more than you relied on your sense of sight. 
And so you can still function, you just start depending upon these other senses. Well, it's a similar type of thing. When God tells you to do something, and you have a promise in God's Word, and yet everything you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel looks contrary to it. The Lord says you're healed. The doctor says you're dying. Your body says you hurt. The mirror tells you you're losing weight. It's getting worse instead of better. What do you do when what you see is contrary to what you believe? Well, if you exercise yourself, if you develop it, you can get to where you depend upon that sixth sense of faith as much or more than you depended upon your five senses. And it's not that the five senses just shut down and don't function. They will feed you information, but you are more dominated by what you believe than you are by what you see. Now, that's an amazing truth. And some people, this just sounds like this is, this is unobtainable. You can't live that way. You know what I am? I'm not saying that I've arrived, but I've left. I'm moving in that direction. And there are areas that honestly what I see isn't near as real to me as what I believe. And I've seen good results, including people raised from the dead because of that. It works. And this is what Jesus was talking about. They said, why couldn't we cast this demon out? He said, it's not because you don't have faith. It's because you got unbelief. If your faith was only this big, it would be enough to provide whatever miracle you've got. I want to encourage you today and tell you, you do have enough faith. If you were born again, you were given the faith of the Son of God. You've got enough faith. You have the potential on the inside of you to see any miracle that God wants to happen in your life come to pass. Faith isn't the problem. The problem is you've got unbelief that is diluting and, and negating your faith. And you've got to get rid of that unbelief. So how do you get rid of this unbelief? Well, again, I mentioned there were three types of unbelief. The first one is unbelief that comes through ignorance. The answer is you teach them the truth. There's unbelief that comes through wrong teaching. The answer is you teach them the truth. But how do you get rid of this third type of unbelief? An unbelief that just comes through natural senses. You just don't see what you're believing for. How do you deal with that? Jesus answered that in verse 21. After he had said, let's go back to verse 20. Jesus answered about why they couldn't cast this spirit out. He said unto them, It's because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye should say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Then in verse 21 he says, Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Did you know the way that I've read this a lot of times, and I've, I've never heard anybody else interpret this verse the way that I'm about to interpret it. But I don't believe that I'm wrong. I believe that this is exactly what he's saying. But here's what most people think that this verse says. Most people think that this is talking about this kind of demon only goes out through prayer and fasting. The fallacy with that kind of thinking is that if you say that the name of Jesus and faith in the name of Jesus isn't enough to get a person delivered, instead you had to add to it your fasting and prayer well, then that's diminishing and belittling the atonement of the Lord Jesus. I tell you, if Jesus isn't enough and faith in His name isn't enough, then your prayer and fasting isn't going to get it done either. That is totally wrong thinking to think that some demons only respond to you and your prayer and fasting and how holy you are. Nope, that's wrong. So what's this talking about? I believe that the answer is the context of it in the previous verse, he says the problem was your unbelief. And he's talking about this type 
This kind of unbelief only comes out through much prayer and fasting. And again, I say that there's three types. The first two types, ignorance and wrong belief, can be countered by just telling a person the truth. But the type of unbelief that comes through what you see, just comes through your five senses, the very fact that you aren't seeing and experiencing what you're believing for, that's going to cause you to have thoughts of unbelief. How do you overcome that type of unbelief? This says that it only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now that's a strong statement. And this makes much more sense to me than thinking that there's certain demons that only respond to prayer and fasting. Because there is no devil that you will ever encounter that has to have fasting and prayer to get it out. That's not true. Regardless of what somebody's teaching you, that's not true. If you encounter a devil that won't respond to the name of Jesus and your faith in the name of Jesus, then your fasting and prayer is not going to get him out either. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this kind of unbelief. If you pray for something and see something differently, you're going to have a natural thought of unbelief because your eyes are telling you, well, it didn't work. God didn't do anything. You can train those senses to acknowledge that there is more than just this physical world. You can train it. You can get rid of that kind of unbelief. You know, the Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14... Let me just turn over there and read this to you so that I don't misquote it. It says, But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This talks about that maturity belongs to those who by reason of use. This isn't a one-time thing. It's not just somebody waving their hand over you and all of a sudden you become mature. But maturity comes through a process through doing things over and over and exercising your senses to discern both good and evil. Most of us have only allowed our senses to discern evil. We can discern things in this natural realm, but we can't see things and discern things in the spiritual realm. Did you know with training, with effort, you can teach yourself that there is more than what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel? There's more than just this physical world that there is also a spiritual world out there. And you can get to where faith can be like a sixth sense to you and you can perceive things by faith and get to where those things are just as real to you as what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. I know that some of you are thinking, oh, this is weird. You know, I believe it's weird for a person to be limited and think that all that they can perceive is just your with your five senses. You know, that's limited. Even in the natural realm. Did you know right now, most of you are watching this program on television. But did you know that in wherever you are, if you're in a room, if you're in any place that you're getting television, did you know that there's other television signals there? And if you say, no, there aren't, why, why would you say that? Because you don't see them and you don't hear them. That doesn't mean that they aren't there. Those television and radio signals are there all of the time. But the problem is you can't perceive it by just your five senses. But you can take a television set and plug it in, turn it on, tune it in, and all of a sudden you start seeing those television signals. But that television set doesn't originate those signals. It doesn't actually generate that signal. All it is doing is taking something that already exists, but it's just beyond your little peanut brain ability to comprehend. 
But mechanically, you can pick up those signals and then rebroadcast them into a realm that you can perceive. Now see, in the natural, there are things that exist that you can't see. You can't see germs. And yet most of us have come to realize that germs exist and we take action to limit the spread of germs and do things like that. Even in the natural realm, we have educated ourselves and learned that there's things that exist that you can't see, taste, hear, smell, or feel. And I'm telling you that beyond the ability of science to prove something, there is an entire spiritual world of angels and demons, of things going on in the spiritual realm that are real and they do exist. And those of you who think, well, I don't believe it because I can't see it, taste it, hear it, smell it, or feel it. Your senses can't pick it up. You're the ones that I think are weird. I really do. If you are limited to only the physical realm, you're only playing with half a deck. You aren't dealing with all of the things that are necessary. There is a spiritual world and it is very obvious to anybody who really sits down and, and listens to their heart that there is more going on than what you can see with your physical eyes. And so, how do you get rid of this unbelief, just being trained and dominated, controlled by your five senses? Well, you do it through focusing on God, but specifically, Jesus said, it's through prayer and fasting. Now, here's why prayer and fasting will help break the dominance of just the carnal realm over you. When you pray, did you know that you are speaking to a person that you can't see? That there isn't any physical proof. Now, in a sense there is. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God and things. But you know, there are people that if they want to, they can come up and credit all of this to evolution and believe that it just happened. That we came from goo to by way of the zoo to what we are. And you know, that's just not true. But instead, there is a spiritual reason why all of this exists. And some people just deny the creation and things like that. But you are, when you pray, you are talking to a God that you can't prove with just your five senses that He exists. Now, you can prove it with your heart if you will operate in faith and let that sense of faith operate. You can perceive the presence of God. But see, when you pray, what you are doing, in a sense, is going beyond your five senses. You're getting out of that little box that your five senses try and limit you to about nothing is true but what I can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And when you pray, you're talking to a God that you can't see, that you can't feel, that you can't touch, you can't hear with just physical things. And you are training your senses that there is more that exists than just what they can perceive. And so you talk to a God that you can't see, and then you hear a God that you can't see talk to you, not with your physical ears, but with your heart. You can hear things. God can speak things to you and give you revelation. Man, that's happened to me tens of thousands of times. Praise God that I have ears to hear that are beyond just these physical ears on my head. I can hear with my heart. And see, as you pray and as you're in communion with God, you can reach a place to where you start seeing proof of it. God has spoken things to me, and I could give you a thousand examples right now, but God has spoken things to me that I didn't see with my eyes, I didn't hear with my ears, but I acted on it, I did it, and miracles have come to pass. And you know what this has done? It's quieted my five senses down. I have trained them, I've exercised them to know that there are things that exist beyond what they can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. So then when I come up and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm healed, 
And my senses say, well, you still got the same pain. You still got the same problem. And this, I have a tendency to have this natural unbelief of, well, it couldn't have happened because I can't perceive it. Because I've been in communion with God and thousands and thousands of times God has spoken to me and I've obeyed it. And my senses have seen this. You know, after a while, they just learn that, you know what, there's more than what we can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. And they learn to quiet down and submit to my sixth sense of faith. It's the same thing with fasting. Here's what fasting does to affect this type of unbelief that just comes naturally through your senses. Did you know one of your strongest senses is taste? Or you could say hunger, your desire for food. People have cannibalized each other. Man, I just read a story about people that lived for 75 days after a plane crash and they did it by cannibalizing 40-something people that died on that plane and they ate their flesh. I mean, the desire to live is strong and because of it, people will do things that they would never do under normal circumstances. People will kill for food. And so, your, your hunger or your desire for Food is one of your strongest senses that you have. And it's also one of the quickest to um, be touched, to be affected. Did you know you could uh, close your eyes and be blindfolded and do without? I mean, you would have to certainly make adjustments, but you can live without your eyesight. You can go deaf and live without your hearing, but you can't live without food. And I mean, it's desperate. And so, here's what's happened. When you start on a fast, your appetite will rear up in a hurry. I've talked to a lot of people that believe that by noon on the first day of a fast that they are in the process of dying. Did you know physically that's not true? A day of fasting is actually good for you. It's beneficial to you. It'll actually clear your system of a lot of toxins. Medical profession says it's good to fast one day a week. You are not dying by noon on the first day. Medically speaking, you don't really begin to start eating flesh, muscle, and things like this until after 40 days on a fast. That's why it was so critical when Jesus went into a fast 40 days and Satan came to tempt him. He was literally in starvation at that time and it wasn't just a lust or a desire. It was a necessity that he needed food and that made the temptation even stronger. But no, you don't die on the first day or the second day. Now there's some wisdom to use with this. You can't go without water, naturally speaking, more than three days before you begin to die. And usually about seven days is as long as anybody can go without water, some type of liquid. So there's wisdom to use. I'm not trying to teach on fasting. If you are uh, trying to go on an extended fast, you need to get some material beyond what this program is talking about so that you can do it correctly. But you aren't going to die within one day or two days or something. But your senses will try and tell you that you're dying they, you will feel so weak, you'll have a headache. And contrary to what a lot of people think, they think that a fast is meant to be a glorious experience to where you just hear angels' voices and you can feel their wings and man, God speaks to you and you have visions and dreams. And most people think that a fast is just a wonderful thing. If you had time, turn over to Isaiah chapter 58 and read about a fast. A fast is a day to afflict yourself, to punish yourself. It actually, what a fast does, it's not meant to be a good thing. What it is, it is a way of denying your five senses, specifically this sense of taste 
our hunger, your drive for food. And what you're doing by denying it, you are decreasing its control over you. You are limiting its effect. And so what actually happens on a fast, when you go on a fast, I guarantee you, all of your carnality, all of the ungodliness on the inside of you is going to be flushed to the surface. And instead of hearing angels' voices and seeing all of these wonderful things, what the typical fast will do, it'll bring out every rotten thing on the inside of you. You'll become irritable. You'll become cranky. You will start doing things. And what you're doing, you're flushing your flesh to the surface to where you can deal with it and eliminate it and get it out of your life. And if you persist on a fast... It's like this. Your flesh will be crying out and say, feed me, feed me, I'm going to die. And you say, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said when he was tempted over his hunger. And what you begin to do is start telling your flesh that, you know what, it's not just physical food that's important. It's being focused upon God. There is nourishment that comes through seeking God, physical nourishment. Seeking God is good for you physically, not only spiritually. So you deny your flesh. And see, if your flesh has been so dominating and controlling you that when you say, by the stripes of Jesus, I'm healed, your flesh says, no, you aren't. You still got this pain. I feel this. Well, when you go on a fast, what you're doing, you are denying that flesh. You are teaching it that you can live without it. It doesn't have to be fed and pampered. You know, all most of us have to do is just look in the mirror and turn sideways and you can tell that your flesh is controlling you instead of you controlling it. Most Americans today are overweight and the only way you get overweight is to eat more than you need, more often than you need it. That's it. You can blame it on your hormones, you can blame it on your genes and say this and that, but you know, basically it's just because we are letting our flesh dominate us and your weight isn't the cause of the problem, it's a result of a problem. It's a result of the flesh having control over us. How do you break that control? You deny it. You resist it. You rebel at it. You go on a fast and you say, flesh, you're going to get into the line. You're going to get to where you recognize that you aren't dominating me, but the spirit man on the inside of me is going to dominate you. I may have to eat, but I don't have to eat all of the time, and I don't have to eat as much as you tell me to eat. I'm in control. You will submit to me. And the moment you make that decision, I guarantee you, your flesh and your spirit are going to have a fight. And the typical fast is not a glorious experience, but it's a tough experience. But by doing it, what you're doing is denying your flesh and bringing it under control. It's kind of like your flesh says, feed me, feed me. And you say, no, I'm in control. And your flesh says, I'm going to die by noon on the first day. And you say, man, well, I'm going to go on a two-day fast. And your flesh will say, no, I'll be dead for sure in two days. All right, three days. And your flesh says, I can't make it three days. And you say, all right, four days. And all of a sudden, your flesh realizes that if it's going to come out of this thing alive, it had better shut up and quit arguing because every time it argues, you just put more pressure on. And so your flesh subsides, your spirit dominates. And when you come out of a fast, you know what's happened? Your flesh has learned that, hey, I didn't die after four days. I'm still alive. As a matter of fact, I'm even better off. And what you begin to learn is that there is a spiritual world out there and that the spiritual you is more important than this carnal you. 
And then when your doctor tells you you're going to die and you say, in the name of Jesus, I'm healed, and your flesh says, nope, you still have pain, I still see the tumor, you can say, flesh, you submit. There are things that you can't see and understand, but it's true. And I refuse to go by what I feel. And see, if you've been on a fast and if you have trained your flesh that there is more than just what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel, then it'll submit and that unbelief will subside and faith will dominate and just that little mustard seed amount of faith will produce whatever healing you need. But if you've never denied your flesh, if your flesh tells you when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, and it controls you and you don't want to do it, but you wind up giving in, then when you say, flesh in the name of Jesus, I command you to quit dominating me. I'm not going by what I see or feel. If you haven't ever disciplined it, your flesh is going to laugh at you and say, who are you to tell me anything? I tell you when to eat, what to eat. I'm in control. And you know what? That natural unbelief that comes through just what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel will dominate you and control you more than what you believe in the spirit realm. Or you could go back and take this terminology that I've been using all through this teaching. You could say that because you spend so much time operating in just the physical realm, you have become more sensitive to, more softened towards the physical, natural truth than you have spiritual truth. You have become hardened to spiritual things. You may still understand that it's God's will for you to be well, but you won't see that healing come to pass because your five senses are going to tell you it didn't work, it didn't work, and that unbelief is going to hinder your faith and stop you from receiving. But you can reverse this process through fasting and prayer, basically just focusing upon God with all of your attention. You can deny your flesh and spend so much time operating in faith in the spiritual realm that the spiritual world and what it is telling you is stronger than what the natural senses tell you. I don't know if you got that, but that is one awesome truth. And I'm telling you that this is the reason that many of you who are good people, who love God and are living a moral life and are believing for good things to come to pass still aren't seeing it manifest. It's not because of sin. It's because you are just so living in the natural realm. You haven't denied your flesh. And what you see, taste, hear, smell, and feel is more real to you and in releasing more reality into your life than the spiritual reality because you spend more time in the natural than you spend in the spiritual. To reverse that process, just get to where you consider, focus on the spiritual things and you will become sensitive to that and you will begin to become hardened, insensitive to the natural things. Man, that's powerful.